cool. I'm glad we got to glad we got to come on. How's your day? It's good. I uh, finished working about an hour ago, and I'm ready to move into a weekend with my family. So yeah, nice. And you work remote on Fridays, right? It it varies. We've got some flexibility. So mm-hmm. I was on the road the last two days and decided to just work at home so I could be around my family today. Nice. Awesome. Yeah. Well, dude, I'll just jump right into the topic of what you, what you spent the last 27 years, correct? Yep. And that was in the FBI. Yep. So what years was that from back to the 90s? So I I processed, I my, my entry on duty with the FBI was August 20 of 1995. Okay. Um, and then I retired on September 10 of 2022 so it was it was 27 years wow wow 1995 i i learned that you could only be a special agent for 20 years is that is that correct so to get your retirement to retire with a federal law enforcement retirement you have to have at least 20 years of service um and generally speaking you have to have at least 20 years of service and be 50 years of age that's okay. the general rule. There are some nuanced exceptions to that, but typically speaking, a guy's looking to get his 20 years and hit 50, and then he can retire. Yeah. Now, mandatory retirement at 57. So really? without without an, um, a waiver from the director of the FBI, once you hit 57, you must retire. Wow. Even like clerical work? Office. No, just for the law enforcement, for the for the agent's position. Oh, okay. Yeah. Wow. So your start, did you start as an agent or was it, it was seven, was, I, I, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so, so I started as an FBI special agent. Okay. Um, and um, not everyone starts that way, but I think when most people think of the FBI, that's probably what they think of as the yeah. special agent position. So I started there. Um, and then I continued working past the age of 50. And when I turned 55, I knew I just had two years left and then they were going to say, Hey, you're, you're not allowed to come in here anymore really? at 57. Yeah. So you saw your way out personally. I did. Yeah. yeah. Things kind of came together for another opportunity and, yeah. I, and I retired. Yeah. So going back to the start, you mentioned in a previous conversation, you, you book at a, a standing FBI office. Yeah. Is so that, what is that it, protocol? So, so, so what happens, Hayes, is um, there there are roughly fifty six FBI field offices around the United States, mm. and those offices are in larger cities: Dallas, Denver, okay. Los Angeles. Um, and what happens is when you apply to the FBI, your your application goes now. It goes into an automated system, and what they do then is they is they process your all of your application materials through the closest field office. So for example, for me at the time I was working as a trial attorney in Oklahoma City. So my my application process ran through the Oklahoma City field office. They coordinated every they coordinated everything. They have an applicant uh, coordinator in the office who works people through the application process and and then if you get to the FBI Academy at Quantico, you're sent from that field office to the FBI Academy. And when your academy training is over, you come back to where you lived before you went off to training 
and they move you to wherever you've been assigned. Oh, wow. Wow. In, in training in Quantico, that's where everyone goes to train? Yes. Everyone who's going to be an agent, an FBI special agent, um, must complete the new agent's training program okay. at the FBI Academy at Quantico, Virginia. And there's 56 offices. Do they send like a batch of people each year, like one time a year? And how many are in that class? So when I came in, um, I think the year I came in in 1995, as I recall, I think they put um, about 1,200 people through the FBI Academy that oh, wow. year. Uh, that that was a that was an atypical year. There was a large influx of of agent hires that year. Um, so what happens is when they get a class of new agents and each class is, is around about 50 agents. Um, when they get a class of new agents, uh, what will happen during that training program is they'll assign people from that class to various field offices. So in my class, you know, I went to Salt Lake city. There were other people in my class who went to, Los Angeles and Boston and Miami and mm. Dallas and Houston, Cleveland. Um, no one really knows in the class why you get sent where you sent where, where they send you. Mm -hmm. But what what happened when I came in and the process is is probably largely similar now. What happened when I came in is, in your first week at the FBI Academy, they hand you a map of all the FBI field offices nationwide. And they say, look, rank these in order of where you'd like to go. Hmm. And don't, don't, don't try to second guess the way it works. Like if you wanna go to Seattle number one, then you better put Seattle number one. Okay. And so, um, you know, I was very fortunate. I got my first choice. I, 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 I put Salt Lake City number hmm. one primarily because my wife and I knew that if we got sent to a satellite office off of one of the main offices, you know, Salt Lake has got some unbelievable locations. There are offices in Missoula, Montana, Boise, Idaho, Billings, Montana, and I was sent to Billings, Montana. Mm -hmm. I have a picture of what the FBI is based on what criminal minds and yeah. many other shows. And I'm sure you had a picture of it too going before. At what point in academy did they t did tell you like, hey, this is what the FBI is? Was ever was there ever a moment like that? Yeah, there, there was never really a moment like that. What what they're doing at at the FBI academy, and they'll they'll tell you this when you're there. Like, we're not really teaching you to be an FBI agent. There's mm -hmm. too much to learn, and most of what you learn, you learn on the job. What they're teaching you at Quantico is how the FBI functions. Mm. What what's our What's our documentation system like? You know, what, what do we document? What do we not document? You know, how do you recruit confidential informants? Mm. How do you operate confidential informants? Um, what are basic evidence gathering techniques? Um, hey, we're going to give you this gun that you're mandated to carry wherever you go. We need to make sure that you can qualify with it and that you're ready to carry it. Um, and we're going to teach you techniques for, you know, arresting people. I mean, there were times that our job involved taking folks into custody. Mm. And so there are ways the Bureau likes to do things. Um, they, 
it's an organization that functions on tried and true methods, um, some of which come from outside the FBI, some of them are developed in the FBI. And at Quantico, you learn a lot of those things. But in terms of the day-to-day -day work, like I didn't learn how to investigate a domestic terrorism case at Quantico. Mm. I learned how to document cases at Quantico. When I got to the field and I started working real cases, then I learned how to work real cases. Mm -hmm. Like trial by fire. Once you're there, you learn. Yeah, yeah. and you're, you're assigned as a new agent to a veteran agent. Um, who spends a couple years kind of um, fostering your growth, yeah, helping you learn the job so that when you're off probation two years later, assuming you make it through probation, when you're off probation two years later, you're ready to go. Mm. Like you're ready to work pretty much on your own. Yeah. What's well, probation? Two years. Two years. Is it kind of just like a assisted program? Keep, it, keep you yeah, ready. it's 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 mainly to make sure that somebody is a good fit. Okay, and there are not a lot of people that don't make it through probation. You know, the reality is the bureau spends so much money to get you through the application process, and if you just think about the value of sending an agent to Quantico, where you live for now it's close to five months. Mm. Like you live there five months, they board you, they feed you. You know, they give you world-class law enforcement training. There's a lot of value in that. They don't want to just wash it out because they weren't careful about who they recruited. Right. So by the time you get through probation, it is it's it is a very rare occasion that, that somebody doesn't make it. And it's not because they're not they're not careful about it. It's it's because they've it's precisely because they've been careful to select the right people. Mm -hmm. In the military, there's a, a term, I think it's failure to adapt. And it's like they, they they get these guys out in basic, and it's like they keep trying, and, and you can just tell it's not going to work. Yeah, is I'm, I'm assuming that's really low with FBI. It's really low, and, it, and I think that's for a couple of reasons. Um, you know, there's a bit of a difference between the two models, between the military model and the federal law enforcement model. Um, you know, the... The, the FBI system is designed around the idea that when we get you, we're interested in you because you have experience. Mm. Like you have, so for example, um, I believe to this day, the reason why the Bureau selected me was because I had an undergraduate degree in accounting and a law degree and had worked as a lawyer. Like the FBI has always had um, held in high regard accountants and attorneys. Really? And so that intersection, I think, really helped me. Mm -hmm. So they're not looking to hire people typically who are straight out of college and don't have work experience. They want professional people mm -hmm. who have life experience, who've learned to work in the professional world um, and are capable of doing professional activities. Mm -hmm. So the military, they, they recruit high school graduates, 18-year-old guys, you just yeah. have nothing else or anyone else. A little else. different. Although, yeah. you know, I, there, there, there are a number of people that I knew in the Bureau who had come through the military pipeline into the Bureau. Um, and those guys, like one of my good friends here in the area, he's a West Point graduate. Yep. You know, and then he was an Army Ranger. Yep. And then from the Rangers, he ended up coming to the Bureau. So um, by and large, we're just – we're – we're looking for a different um, season 
of person mm. than the military typically would be. You could you couldn't take an 18 year old fresh out of high school and assign him to FBI special agent work and expect them to excel. It would be too much. Um, and, and the rules are set up so that to get into the FBI, you have to be, you know, at least I think it's either 23 or 24 years of age. So, um, and they want to see that you've met some requirements by then. Like everyone has to have a bachelor's degree. Mm. And a large percentage of folks have master's degrees. Everyone has to have some level of work experience. Um, and it doesn't mean that everybody has the same work experience because they don't. Um, different people come through different backgrounds. And then, you know, it's that, it's that um, collection of a ton of different backgrounds that I think makes the Bureau really strong. Wow. Like a law degree... And then, like, what were some of the ranges of degrees you saw? Yeah, so that's a great question. So so the first night that you arrive, so, so everyone reports to the FBI Academy. When you, when you report to start your training, everyone, when I came in, everyone reported on Sunday night at 5 o'clock. And so you show up and you, you put a suit on and they take you to a classroom. And that, that classroom was our classroom for the entire time we were there. Every class we did that was classroom teaching, didactic teaching was there. Hmm. Um, and then in that classroom that first night, they make every person in the class, there are roughly 50 people to a class. They make each person stand up and discuss, you know, introduce themselves, talk about where they're from, where they went to college, what their work experience is, and, and answer questions like, you know, why are you here? Why, why did you choose to come to the FBI? Why did this interest you? And so that night I was stunned. Uh, we got done that night and I went um, back to my room and I called my wife and I said, I, I don't know how I got selected. <laughs> like the people that are here are very, very impressive. We had pilots. We had um, service academy graduates. We had a couple people who had literally left PhD programs to come. We had um, a guy who had a master's degree in aerospace engineering. We wow. had a metallurgical engineer. Um, we had electrical engineers. We had more engineers than any other background. And there were seven of us who were lawyers. So it was, it was really impressive. But I'll give you an example of why that, why that, um, that large... Um, number of backgrounds is so important. Um, so we go through periods of time where cases come up that are cases that that are that are perfect cases for the FBI, um, larger cases. Um, and so several years ago, you know, we had we had a spree of anthrax letters that were sent nationwide. And so what would happen is, you know, people would get a letter in the mail, and like most of us do, they'd just open anything right. that came to their mail, and they'd they'd open the letter and pull it out. And when they pulled it out, there'd be a white powder that was put inside the mail, maybe in a beveled index card or something. And as they opened it, this white powder would um, spew out in their face. And for and in some cases, it was true anthrax. So people would inhale those anthrax particles and it would kill them. Mm. 
some 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 folks died, some folks that made very, very, very sick. Well, as this happened, we had those letters going to uh, buildings on Capitol Hill. We had them going to businesses. We had them going to na uh, national level journalists. And to, to wrap our arms around what was happening, the Bureau leaned on its personnel who had specific training in biological sciences. Mm. I mean, we have... Uh, I have a good friend who's an agent right now who has a, has a PhD in microbiology. He was, um, he was teaching at a medical school before he entered on duty as an FBI agent. And it's, those, those backgrounds are important because in an investigation like that, for example, you needed agents who could go talk to university laboratory technical specialists about specific strains of anthrax mm -hmm. and where they were coming from and how they could isolate them and know where they were coming from to work the investigation. So, you know, a lawyer like me probably couldn't do that as well. Right. Okay. But a microbiology trained PhD level researcher who was an FBI agent who knows the FBI and knows the science, mm could wrap their arms around those kinds of leads and interviews and make sense of them. So it just marries up the law enforcement and, it does. and the subject matter. So your, your buddy, he was an aerospace engineer. He's, he's doing FBI work and just waiting for a, uh, like, I don't know, there could be many things, but an incidence with airplanes or whatnot, right? Or Probably not. Like I, for example, uh, when I was in Billings, the, the Billings, Montana FBI office is, is part of the Salt Lake City field division, the Salt Lake City field office, okay. which, which was responsible for Utah, Idaho, and Montana. And so I was on our SWAT team for a couple of years, the, the Salt Lake City FBI SWAT team. Oh, wow. And there was another guy I was on SWAT with who was a mechanical engineer by training and had, after he received his mechanical engineering degree, he went through officer candidate school for the Marine Corps wow. and learned to fly helicopters for the Marine Corps. Well, he, when he, when he left the Marine Corps and came to the FBI, um, and he had this degree in mechanical engineering, they ended up assigning him to a bank robbery squad. <laughs> well, you might look at that and think, what a waste of intellect, but it's really not. Um, you know, what we're looking for is bright, motivated people who are willing to do what's asked. Hmm. And so, you know, even my friend who's the, the PhD in microbiology, if you talk to him about what he's doing today, he's not doing biology cases. Now, if we had a science, a national level science case that came up and they needed his expertise, he'd go and he could figure it out. What we're looking for is motivated, bright, responsible people with good common sense and good judgment. Mm. Wow. And that just happens to be some the PhD I, level people. You know. Well, and I say we. I, I haven't worked for the FBI for a year. Yeah. But in my experience, in my 27 years there, that, that was my experience. Wow. So they just have a, a wide variety of everybody. They do. And any, and with dealing with the United States, how big it is, there's always going to be something popping up, right? Yes, and worldwide. 
we have really? offices all around the world. So, you know, I had a friend who was assigned to an office in Nigeria before he came here. I had wow. another friend who he speaks fluent Mandarin and he was in Beijing for many years. Hmm. Um, you know, there, there was a, a, a gal from my class, I think that spent some time in Paris who spoke French. Um, we have offices all over the world. Um, not just here in the continental United States and in Hawaii and Alaska. Do they operate through like the FBI or is it like a, a, a shoot of the other nation's intelligence? No, they're or not intelligence. They're, they're, they're attached to the United States embassy system. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Um, and so upon graduating, you went to Montana. What was the assignment there? Why, why Montana? Yeah, so at the time that I graduated, I didn't know what was happening. You know, I, I viewed myself as this newly minted FBI special agent. And I remember thinking to, to myself when I graduated in, from the academy in December of 95, thinking, I, I can't believe this has happened. Like, I'm really an FBI. This is my dream. It's come true. And um, so Laura and I came back to Oklahoma City and uh, the movers came out and packed us up. The government moves you. and um, That's kind of them. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Uh, packed all our stuff in our little apartment up, and we, we headed up to Montana. And uh, when I got up there, I remember walking into the Billings FBI office for the very first time, and there was just activity and commotion everywhere. Mm. And I was, I was kind of taken aback by it. Um, and I met my supervisor, um, who was a nice man. He was good to lure me. He actually went to our church, um, kind of a quiet man. And um, he introduced me to the agent who was going to be my, um, who was going to be the agent that was my training agent. And um, that agent was obviously extremely busy. And I didn't know it at the time, but at that time, the FBI was involved in a significant national level domestic terrorism investigation involving um, a sovereign citizen anti-government group called the Montana Freeman. Mm. Um, and that group at the time was involved in a lot of different types of criminal activity. The one that was creating the greatest amount of chaos was a bank robbery, not a bank robbery, a bank fraud scheme that they were running. They were inviting people from all over the country to these classes they taught on a rural compound in Montana, teaching them a lot of um, white supremacist ideals. And then at the end of every class, all of these people typically came because they had significant debts that they couldn't get in front of. Tax debts, IRS debts, some of them were in the process of losing their homes to foreclosure, significant medical bills, lots of liens. And, and what they were told is if you'll sit through this class at the end of the last day, the Freeman, one of the Freeman leaders, a man named Leroy Schweitzer, will write you checks to pay off your debts. And what Leroy Schweitzer was doing was he was using a home computer. It was really a pretty crude operation if you consider the date you know, 1995, 94, 95, 96. Um, he'd call each person back at the end of class and 
create checks for them on a home computer, print them out. The checks looked good. They went through a number of iterations over the years. And then these people would all travel home and they'd send these checks out to their debtors to pay off their debts. And the checks were always for more than the amount of the debt with a request that the debtor send them the overage. Mm. And so there were many banks that got stuck, especially on the early end of the scheme before, you know, law enforcement and the financial system nationwide became, uh, had a greater understanding of the scheme and how it was functioning. And so banks lost money on the front end. So that, that scheme is what generated the greatest degree of attention and along with the scheme came a number of threats to um, local, county, state, and federal officials. I mean, we had the Freeman were actually printing color posters offering rewards, million-dollar rewards to people if they would produce the body of federal judges and county-level prosecutors and employees and law enforcement officers. So as that was happening, like I remember shortly after I got there, we, we received a phone call from a state patrol uh, a law enforcement officer in Lawton, Oklahoma, who had stopped a car. And when they arrested the occupants in the car, they found one of those wanted posters. Jeez. So you can think about, you know, what might happen if some of these people took those posters seriously and started kidnapping people to deliver them for ransom. So when I arrived, we were in the middle of all that and the FBI was doing a lot of very sophisticated electronic surveillance on the group. Um, and I knew nothing about it. You know, like I said, Quantico doesn't teach you about that stuff. It teaches you how to draft a report. Mm. You know, it teaches you, how to testify in court. Um, and the, the after and stuff, you know. Right. Not how to handle. Exactly. Yep. And so when I get there, um, things are going nutty. Everybody's running around. And I didn't know it, but the Bureau was sending agents from all of the Salt Lake City offices. Okay. And think about it. Like in Billings, we're 10 hours from Salt Lake City. So... They were sending us agents from all over uh, Montana, Idaho, and Utah, and we were getting agents from all over the country who were being sent to our office to work a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week operation in the Billings RA that typically had seven to ten agents assigned to wow. it. And so when I arrived, that's happening, and I'm, I'm just stunned. I don't know what to make of it. And I asked my newly assigned training agent, I said, what's happening here? Can you explain this to me? And so he explains it to me and he says that the group is operating out of Jordan. Um, and, you know, I, I, I've always been interested in foreign affairs. And I looked at him and I said, you mean the country of Jordan? And he said, no, 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 Jordan, Montana, which was about five uh. hours north of us in a very, very rural part of the state. And so the group had originally been in a small town about an hour north of Billings. And to gain more um, protection, 
and to ensure their ability to avoid getting arrested because they all knew they'd been indicted by the federal government. They moved from this small town north of Billings up to Jordan, and that was where um, we ended up having a standoff with them then several months down the road. And that was, I was thrust into that. That was the first thing that I was assigned to. And when I arrived, I had, I didn't even know that it was going on. I had no idea. What I also didn't know is that the case agent at the time was about to retire. <laughs> and so um, they, they had two case agents assigned to the case, which is not normal. Typically you have, a singular case agent assigned to cases, larger cases will get multiple case agents. There were two co-case agents on this case. The original, more senior of those two agents was looking to retire. And I didn't know it, but they were looking to, um, to develop another agent to come in to be the second case agent when he retired. And I didn't realize that they were, there were three of us from my class sent to Billings. And I didn't know it at the time, but they were, they were looking to take one of us and assign us to that case. Um, and it ultimately ended up, I ultimately ended up being the one they sent, which I wasn't real thrilled with in the beginning because, um, you know, I joined the Bureau, I thought, to work bank robberies and kidnappings. And here I am working this big domestic terrorism case that I know nothing about. You know, I remember one day my supervisor had taken me to the United States Attorney's Office to meet the United States Attorney right after I got there. And we're, we're in her office talking. And while we're in her office, a bank gets robbed hmm. in town. And another agent came up and said to the supervisor, who do you want to send? You know, the bank just got robbed. We've got people doing this and this and this, but who else do you want to send up there? We need to send people up there right now. And uh, he named off the people he wanted to go and it didn't include me. Uh. And I was, I was like, man, I can't believe this. And so it epitomized the way I felt there in the beginning. Like, right. I felt like I was being left out, but I just didn't know that, really what God had for me was this big case right. that was going to form the basis for an unbelievable career. I mean, that, that case ended up launching me into opportunities that lasted the entire 27 years I worked for the FBI. I got to see the country testifying in Freeman-related trials all over the United States. But at the time... I didn't know that was going to happen. And I was kind of bitter about it at first. Mm. So, mm. Wow. The Freemans. Yeah. The they, Montana Freeman is what they were. Montana called. Freeman. Yeah. Their operation. Was it, were they, were they ever like armed? Like, I'm sure they, they yeah. were. Yeah, they were armed. And during the standoff, they had guns. Um, we did surveillance on them and watched them go back and forth from a, from a vantage point they used to conduct surveillance on law enforcement. You know, we had them surrounded, so they weren't going to leave. Mm -hmm. They were stuck there. Um, and they did armed guard duty mm -hmm. um, throughout the day and night each day, uh, believing it would allow them to protect themselves from us coming to arrest them. 
we even though we had the property surrounded and they they actually carried firearms up there and um you know i we testified at trial about how some of the guns they carried up there we determined through tool marks examinations on uh, specific pieces of ammunition that had been extracted from rifles some of the pieces of ammunition some of the cartridges they had loaded into um, the hunting rifles they took up to their guard duty posting were armor-piercing rounds. So they would have killed any agent they had shot, even agents who were in, who were behind, you know, metal cover. Right. It was not. It wasn't for hunting. It was for. Ex- it was for, for killing, killing people. Yeah. For killing people. Yeah. Thankfully, no, none of those shots were fired. Okay. And eventually, it all ended with them surrendering. Hmm and no shots being fired. But there was a time where we had real concerns about, you know, whether they might, they might do something with their weapons mm-hmm. out of frustration that could get an agent or a, or a local law, local or state level law enforcement officer killed. Right. And you look at uh, David Koresh and his group, that was just two years prior, right? Yeah. It was just years. a couple years before that. And, and, um, you know, they were, uh, this group was sympathetic to those, but by, by name, they were sympathetic to Koresh. The Branch Davidians? Yeah, the Branch Davidians and uh, Randy Weaver. You know, right. uh, the the situation with the ATF and the FBI and, and the Weaver location had occurred just within a couple years of our standoff happening, too. Yeah. So, you know, um, we... The standoff we had with the Freeman lasted 81 days. Mm-hmm. And the federal government had essentially evolved to a point where they said, look, you know, we're not going to storm the property. There's no reason why we can't negotiate a resolution to this where people don't get hurt. Yeah. And, and indeed, that was what happened. You, you have to give our negotiation team credit for devising a system that that resulted in those folks coming out without anyone being injured. Yeah. I bet they took a lot of lessons from the Waco siege. They did. Cuz they, they mean, did. That started with with four ATF agents being killed. I mean, that just I think that's I mean, that was just a horrible scenario. And and there were people so again, think about where we were. You know, in Billings, we were in the same FBI field division as Idaho. So um, that that Ruby Ridge compound and the the situation that had occurred there, you know, many of the guys that I was working with that I was on SWAT with, in fact, had been deployed to Ruby Ridge um, with the FBI Salt Lake City Division SWAT team. So for some of those people, um, it was a very that was a very raw moment for them. You know, there, there were a lot of feelings about what had come out of Ruby Ridge, um, people being angry with the FBI. And the people I worked with were guys who'd been sent there to do a job, hadn't done anything wrong. And they, they were really frustrated by the reality that they went and did what they did, and people were angry with them just because they were there. Yeah. So just the... The fact that it was resolved peacefully after 80, 80 something days, that's amazing. Days. Yeah, it was crazy how that happened. Wow. Um, and then, of course, from that, you have all of the legal 
proceedings that ensue. Mm, and that's where you um, stepped in. Yeah. They so, taught you how so to do I, that. I was, um, so uh, a large part of my role and my co-case agents roles, we had agents, you know, there was another FBI agent who was assigned as a case agent um, who had actually been one of my training agents in the beginning. We had IRS agents who were case agents, IRS criminal investigation agents. Um, you know, we had state investigators who worked as case agents with us. It was it was a real um, collaborative process involving a lot of different agencies working mm -hmm. together. And we were working with prosecutors from the, the Department of Justice in D.C. and the U.S. Attorney's Office in Montana. And, you know, getting ready for those trials was just a monumental effort. I mean, you... Um, you know, the first trial, I think, had six or seven defendants, which is a lot. I mean, you you think about five to seven defendants all being in a courtroom together with their lawyers, mm -hmm. okay, and how chaotic that could be. But then we moved on to the larger trial that had, like, you know, 15 people in the courtroom together, all with their lawyers and some of the Freeman defendants were refusing to cooperate with their lawyers. So they weren't even in the courtroom. Their, their lawyers were representing them without them being in the courtroom. So imagine, you know, a judge dealing with 15 defense attorneys, if you will, plus, you know, a cadre of, you know, four or five government's attorneys. I mean, it was, it was a significant undertaking. Wow. So it was like the work just got started at that point. It was to, yeah. get, to get the yeah. legal once, things. Once everybody surrendered and they were arrested, you know, we still had to search the compound and we seized millions of pages of digital evidence and documentary evidence and yeah. firearms. I mean, um, that all had to be tested and examined. And then once it was examined, it had to be turned over to the defense so they could have a fair opportunity to review it for their clients. And then, and then, you know, you've got your normal series of pretrial hearings that happens and, hmm. and then you try the case, like you get in the courtroom and you try the case. Um, and it, it, the trials took weeks and weeks and we did, you know, we did the smaller trial first of, I don't know, it was like six defendants. And um, most of those folks were convicted. There were a couple who were acquitted. Um, and then we moved on to the larger trial with the larger group of defendants. And, you know, we finished that trial and there were hung, there were hung verdicts by the jury. The jury couldn't reach a conclusion on some of those verdicts, about, about half of them. So we had to come back later and retry those counts. So there were there were three trials that ensued there in Billings involving our group of main defendants who had been involved largely in the standoff. Hmm. And so their scheme was it to to get one people who were desperate who had oblig debt obligations, and then they brought them in and almost indoctrinated them gave them fake checks to pay back those debts. So it just involved so many. One, you have the banks. And, and then what happened when those checks were, what, were they, did they bounce? Like, were they determined to be fraud? Yeah, so 
the banking system at that time um, didn't have the technical, the technological abilities it has now. Mm. So, you know, there was more, for lack of a better term, there could be more float built into a check being presented and honored at a banking institution. So it was, it was entirely possible. And what we saw happen repeatedly for a check to be presented, one of the bogus checks to be presented. And if I showed you these checks, you'd be impressed. Really? Like, especially for 1994, 1995, you'd look at those checks and go, that looks real, you know? And mm. so if you consider the fact that these people were coming from all over the country, they'd take a check and present it to a bank um, in their area, which could be, you know, Boston, Seattle. Um, I testified in a trial in Miami, wow. you know, so those initial checks that get circulated there, you know, people present a check, the bank would honor the check because it looked legitimate and pay off a debt. But what ended up happening, it wasn't just the debt being paid off because the debt can be reinstated. Mm. Okay. The greater problem arose when the debt is paid off and then the bank follows the instructions of the person who submitted the check that, okay, I don't know exactly how much I owe, so here's a check, pay off whatever I owe, and then just send the overage to me. And so when the bank provided the overage to the customer, that's where a lot of your theft problem happened because once mm -hmm. that money is submitted to that person and they go use it for whatever they want to use it for, the debt can be reinstated mm -hmm. but once that money is gone it's gone mm -hmm. you're not getting it back and so that that's where a lot of the theft occurred and so what ended up happening was after everyone surrendered um you know in the years in the ensuing years they needed my partner and i to fly around the country essentially to testify in all of these bank fraud trials um we had evidence that we had developed in our case that was very unique that no one else had. We had, um, we had the capability to identify people who had participated in the Freeman scheme and these prosecutors nationwide could then um, subpoena us to come testify in their trials and we could bring the evidence we had and they used it then to try their defendants in each of those local jurisdictions. Mm, so that's what bounced you around the whole country. Because yes. those checks, I mean, they were centered in Montana, but then right. the people went back right. to their homes. And and what's crazy about this, Hayes, is like I go back to the, the, the initial bitterness I had about being assigned to this case. My supervisor called me into the office a couple months after I got there. And again, I didn't know that I was being groomed to be a second case agent on this case. Mm. I didn't know that. And he called me into his office one day and he said, let me make myself clear to you. You are not to work on anything other than the Montana Freeman case. Do you understand me? And I said, yes, sir, I understand you. And I thought, okay, well, I'll, I'll be a company guy and do what's asked, you know. Um, and I could not have known that over 
the next several years, I would have the honor of traveling around the country testifying in all of these trials. As a lawyer who had practiced law, who had literally dreamed of what it would look like to testify in a trial as a witness with legal training, like I dreamed about that. What would that be like? How cool would that be? Mm -hmm. And then in the years later, that's what I got to do. I mean, I've, I testified in trials in San Jose, California and Boise, Idaho, and, um, you know, not just in Billings, but in Miami and I, in Iowa, I flew all over the country getting to do this. And it was a blast. Hayes, it wow. was so much fun. But it happened. I mean, it's clear that's what God wanted for me. He set that up in the beginning. I just couldn't have known that's what was coming. Wow. You were like the most overqualified witness in all of history. <laughs> no. <laughs> there, there are actually a lot of attorneys in the FBI. Um, I, I was not the only one. We, we had a lot of lawyers. I just happened to be assigned to this case. And, um, man, it, it, was, it was a fabulous, it was just a fantastic start to my career. I, I still can't believe that's what I got to do right out of the shoot. Wow. wow, that's amazing. And did, you, I, did your field officer, when he, he brought you in, did he, was that statement about don't work on anything else, was that because he knew, he knew a future you didn't know? Like, he did. Like, this is he what did. you're doing. This is what you're here for right now. He did. And what you have to understand is that while all of this stuff with the Freeman is happening, you've still, like, the office there was still responsible for two federal Indian reservations. Mm. Okay. The FBI, in many areas of the country, has primary jurisdiction over crimes, serious crimes on, on Indian reservations. So, you know, we still had to have people responding to rapes and homicides and child sexual assaults on the yeah. Indian reservations. We still had bank robberies, you know, like the story I told you. We still had bank fraud that was not related to the Freeman. Um, you know, during the standoff, we had an FBI agent um, who was driving out to the location. He was assigned on his particular shift that day up near Jordan, and he died. In, a, in, an, in an auto accident. Well, someone has to work those, okay? Mm. So there was a lot of regular FBI work that was going on that wasn't working the Montana Freeman case. Right. And what, what my supervisor was trying to tell me was, look, this is what we want you to do, okay? We have other people in the office who are gonna be doing those other things. This is where we want you right now so don't go get wrapped up in other yeah. stuff which was heartbreaking to me at first i want like i i wanted to go do the other sexy stuff but i could not have known what was coming mm -hmm. it's like it, yeah there's a much higher it's like this is this is a very singular there's always this kind of stuff around the whole entire country right every and day then of, and then eventually when the freeman case was over and i testified in most of those trials I needed a break from domestic terrorism. And I went into the new supervisor's office and said, I want to go work on the Indian reservation. Can you let me go down there? And he did. He assigned me to the Crow Indian reservation for the next two years. Then I worked all violent crime mm. um, and didn't work domestic terrorism anymore. Mm. We all need our break with domestic terrorism. Yeah. There's a movie called Wind River. Have you heard of it? I've heard of it. I've not watched it. People have told me I need to watch it. That. That reservation, the Wind River Reservation, is actually just a couple hours south of the reservation I worked. Wow, that's it's fantastic. You have 
it's Elizabeth Olsen, I think, but she is she's like this inner city. She's really pomp, but she gets tasked out to Wind River, and it was one of the coolest scenes in any movie I've seen where they go out to the reservation and there's these security guards for an energy uh, plant or something, and it's the reservation or the it's the Wyoming cops and like the county sheriffs and whatnot, and they're in this big standoff, and she like steps up she goes everyone guns down i'm the only one with jurisdiction here and everyone's like yeah she's right we gotta and they all they all stand down and it was just the coolest moment in that movie but i didn't i didn't know that the only the fbi is it just the fbi or do they have like the chief it varies uh different regions of the country and different reservations have different um have different systems for their law enforcement responses um you know, there are some areas of the country where the FBI doesn't have uh, primary jurisdiction over the larger crimes that occur. Others, they do. Um, and a lot of those laws have changed recently. You know, Oklahoma, for example, has been in the headlines because there have been some very significant developments that have uh, resulted in the FBI having responsibility over um, locations where crimes have occurred in the state of Oklahoma that previously were handled by, you know, the Tulsa police department, for example. Um, so where I was located in Montana, there are a lot of Indian reservations that the FBI had primary responsibility for the higher felonies on. Mm -hmm. Um, the one I worked was the Crow Indian reservation. You know, we didn't work every crime that occurred there. You know, at one point I looked down at my, ledger of cases and I had I think I had 50 open cases and I believe that morning as I looked 40 of them were child sexual assault cases and then there was you know there were homicides and adult rapes and sometimes there might be embezzlement and, and fraud allegations but most all of it was violent crime mm. wow and that, that's how long did you do the violent crime? Section? I did that for two years, and then I transitioned over to. Um, I worked on a large healthcare fraud case, a white collar case, and then I started doing online undercover work where I was posing as children, wow. um, trying to arrest sexual predators. I did a lot of um, uh, online child pornography work, and then I did a large insurance fraud case. And then I, I got to go to FBI headquarters and I left Billings and we moved to Washington, D.C. and things changed all over again. So. Yeah. What's it like at, at the headquarters? It's um, if I took you in the building, you'd be completely under impressed by the structure. Really? It's dark. Um, it seems impersonal. Um, it's got thousands of people who work in it. Um, you know, it's got quite a history. Um, I kind of enjoyed uh, being there for the years I was there. You know, I'd walk down the street and think, man, I, I, I can't believe I'm working in Washington, D.C. On my lunch hour, I'd go for runs and, you know, run the monuments, wow. run by the Vietnam Memorial and the, and the World War II Memorial and the Lincoln Memorial. Um, so there's a lot of cool history there. I, I just enjoyed the opportunity to go to headquarters. That was special mm -hmm. for me. Um, but that headquarters life, it's hard. 
you know, um, at the time I left headquarters right toward the end, my wife was in graduate school and, um, she could not be at home in the evening. She, she had a heavy schedule. Um, and so I needed to commute into the district every day, do my work and then come home and get my kids in their after school program by 6.30. So I was typically leaving my house at 4.20 in the morning and then driving to a Metro line station, parking my car, getting on the first Metro line train out at 5 a.m., riding the train in and I'd open the door to the unit where I worked at 5.30 and I'd leave at you know 3, 3.30 each day and come home. Um, you can only do that so long before your body just can't do it anymore. It's just, it was just so hard. Mm. And, um, and then I had the opportunity to come back here to Fayetteville. I'd gone to college in Solemn Springs at John Brown. And when they offered me the opportunity to come back here to Fayetteville, I just, I, I couldn't believe I was hearing what I was hearing. And wow. jumped at it. Yeah. Especially with kids yeah. and a wife in master school. Yeah. I I want to have the opportunity to work in DC in any in any regard but that I've I've always loved going there. Yeah, it's a it's fascinating. My kids um some of them don't remember it as much. We have five children and when Laura was in graduate school, you know, I needed to deal with the kids on the weekends so she could study. She was going to PA school at the time and I would literally load up all five kids into our suburban we lived in Annapolis okay. and I, and at the time, I don't know that you can do this anymore, but at the time on weekends, um, FBI personnel assigned to the headquarters building to the J. Edgar Hoover building could drive in and park in the parking garage underneath the building on the weekends. Um, those are very coveted spaces during the week. They're, they're assigned out, but during the weekends, most people weren't there. So I'd load my five kids up, put them in the Suburban. We'd drive down to the headquarters building and I'd unload everybody and we'd go to the big gymnasium inside. And, you know, there were ropes hanging down from the ceiling and you know, my kids would be in there climbing the ropes up to the top and getting all the basketballs out and rolling <laughs> them out onto the floor. And we'd go run around on the mall and then have lunch at Pot Bellies. And, um, and looking back, you know, I've told the kids, I'm like, guys, I wish all of you could remember that on weekends, I took you to the Hoover building where you played. That's incredible. Like you, you ran around in the gym in the FBI headquarters building for a couple hours with me. And then we'd go play on the mall. You know, we'd throw a football out by the monuments or whatever. So, um, you know, it was... It was an unbelievable experience for me and for my family. Um, but now I live in Tawny Town, Arkansas, you know, <laughs> and we have this life here that is just a dream. Um, and to think that the Bureau brought me here is just beyond belief. Wow, they've taken you. Like, it seems like they've just taken you to glory to glory. Man, I'm blessed. Yeah. It's, it's just, it, I, I still cannot believe that I got to do 27 years with the Bureau. And um, it's like, had a youth pastor tell me one time, he said, look, the book of um, Ecclesiastes, in the book of Ecclesiastes, the author says that the man who loves his work is a blessed man. 
and I, I, I loved my work. Like it went like that. It went that fast. The day I retired, I thought, I can't believe it's over. Wow. Like it feels like it started yesterday. I, I had the opportunity to work my dream job. So if anyone ever tells you that you'll never find a job you really love, they're lying. I loved my job. It was it was a blast. I can't believe I got to do it. Wow. One last thing before we run out of time. What was it like to have did you have a badge? I like did. You, you know, I all love the scenes where they flash the badge, you know. Yeah. Uh say Federal Bureau of Investigation. What was it like? When did you realize like, man, I'm a defender of the US United States of America? What what was that honor? What did it feel like? So the time that it probably hit me the um what really sunk in on a regular basis was, you know, when you'd go to a ball game with your kids or, you know, where my wife and I are both University of Oklahoma grads, you know, we'd go to an OU football game and we'd sing the national anthem. Like you're, you're looking at the flag and I would think to myself, you know, I, I would think of the occasions when I did things with my colleagues, my friends where, you know, the stakes were really, really high, you know. Um, I, I remember a particular occasion when we were going to arrest a guy in a rural area, and I'm driving down the road with another agent in a convoy of vehicles going to this cabin, thinking to myself, I, I just had this feeling that we were going to get in a shooting that day. And you don't stop. You know, you keep going. And so... Um, I felt like, you know, there was a lot on the line and it was a huge privilege to be able to do that. I mean, every time I put that badge on, um, like it, it was a big deal to me. It really meant a lot to me. And for years after I graduated from Quantico, I would look at myself in the mirror and think, Man, I just can't believe that this has happened. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it, it was a tremendous source of pride. Um, and when you retire, they give you your badge. They drill a hole in it so you can't go around presenting it wow. anymore. But they give you a, um, a mounted um, like shadow box that has your badge and your FBI credentials that you presented to people your entire career. They mount those for you and present them to you. And, and I have them on my desk where I work um, in my home office at home and, and it's it's still just unbelievable to me that they were mine i i still can't believe i got to do it wow sounds like an amazing time yeah it was awesome wow. well randy that's all the time we got thank you so much for coming sure. out here man yeah, i my really pleasure. love this conversation yeah all righty